Today's sermon will be from Jonah 1, and I'll be reading from the ESV, and you can follow along in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then this sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and let us not lay, lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah hurled and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from his raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice for the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would tend to the preaching of it now, that Christ would be made much of. Work in our souls, we pray. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. My name is Joey. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of beginning our short four-week series through the book of Jonah. And if you have any history with the church, uh, you have probably heard of Jonah. And even if you don't have any history with the church, you've probably heard of Jonah. So from Veggie Tales to action figures to children's books and and musicals, uh, Jonah gets more hype than the average historical prophet, doesn't he? And so I wonder what comes to mind when when you think of Jonah. I'm guessing it has something to do with the strangeness of the story. 
You have a disobedient prophet, and it's been swallowed by a big fish. It's strange. Uh, But if that's all there is to the book of Jonah, we are wasting our time this morning. What if Jonah is about something more? What if Jonah is not so much about God's message to Jonah, but God's mercy to the nations? What if Jonah is not so much about uh, Jonah's disobedience, but God's devoted love? What if Jonah is not so much about strange events, storms, and fish, and plants, but it's more about God's sovereign grace? What if Jonah is actually not about Jonah? What about a greater Jonah to come? And what if we read Jonah not from a self-righteous position of how could he be so dumb and disobedient and more from a humble posture of where do I need God's grace and mercy in my rebellion? Well, over the next four weeks, that's what we hope to do, to, to read Jonah with fresh eyes and soft hearts asking God to do what only he can do and that is reveal himself who he is and what he's done from the pages of Scripture, that we might eternally glorify him for the gladness of our souls forever. So historically speaking, Jonah was written in the 7th century, about 750 years before Christ. But more important, I would would say, is that where Jonah is in the context of Scripture where it is in the whole story of the Bible. And so Jonah is not just a random, moralistic tale haphazardly placed in the middle of a disconnected book. Jonah is part of a larger story. God's story is told in God's Word. And so what would happen if you fast-forwarded to a random spot in a movie, watched for 30 seconds, and then tried to determine what that movie was about? At best, it would be unhelpful, and let's just be honest, you'd probably just be plain wrong about what the movie was. So it is with Jonah. We can't, just like we can't watch 30 seconds, or random 30 seconds to determine the whole of a movie, we can't understand Jonah apart from the rest of the story of the Bible. And the Bible is one story. Creation by God, rebellion by humanity, redemption through Christ, and the restoration of all things. So the Bible is the story of God's gracious redemption of His wayward people and restoration of all things through the life, death, burial, resurrection, reign, and return of Jesus Christ. Or, to put it more simply, God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixes it. That's the story of the Bible. And so Jonah is part of what we'd call the Old Testament. Old doesn't mean it's useless, it just means it's before Christ, the Old Covenant. And Jonah is, the Old Testament was the law of the prophets and the writings, and Jonah is part of the prophets, what we would often call the minor prophets, or what we'd call the book of the twelve. So Jonah is one chapter and part of a larger story. And if you have your Bibles, look there at the very first word. It either says now or and. From the very first word, we're signified that Jonah is part of a continuation of a story. So it's picking up things that have already been happening. And so if you look in your Bibles, the book that comes right before Jonah is the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is about the the day of the Lord. 
So the day the Lord will come to judge the nations. But if you look at verse 17 of Obadiah, it says, but in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be called holy. Who's going to escape? That's what Jonah answers. And then the book that comes after Jonah is the book of Micah. And it too promises judgment and salvation. Judgment against hypocritical religion and salvation for those who trust in a shepherd who will be born in Bethlehem. And so Jonah sits between books telling the story of God's judgment on the rebellious and God's grace and mercy to the repentant. And God's grace, as we see, is for all peoples, all nations who trust in the promised Savior, Messiah. And not only is this the prophet of these message of these prophets, also it's the message of the entire Bible. So if we think back to Genesis 1, God gives a command to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, fill the world with worshipers. It doesn't go so well. And so he goes to Abram in Genesis 12 and says, listen, you're going to be a blessing to who? All the families of the earth. Jesus comes. And he gives the same thing. He gives what's called the Great Commission. Make disciples of who? Make disciples of who? All nations. And what do we see in the book of Revelation, the very end of the story? Who's around the throne worshiping King Jesus? All tribes, all tongues, all nations, and all peoples. Jonah fits into that story. So is Jonah just about a disobedient prophet and big fish, or is it about something else? Could Jonah be about God's boundless compassion that swallows up human rebellion and prejudice for the glory of his name? Could Jonah be about God's sovereign plan to use his chosen prophet who sinks down to death so that Gentiles might have life? Well, let's find out. So we jump into chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, I want to walk us through two main ideas this morning. One, rebellion leads to destruction. And two, God's mercy and grace swallows up our rebellion. Rebellion leads to destruction. So as we, we open up the book of Jonah, we see the Jonah is called by the Word of God. And in verse 2, we see the specifics of that call. And that call is to go to Nineveh and call out against it. Why? Because it's evil, the text says. So notice that God sees evil in the world. He's not uninvolved. He is caring. And he raises Jonah up to go preach judgment. How will Jonah respond? Will he be like Isaiah and say, yeah, Lord, here I am. Send me. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to joyfully obey God. No. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, no thanks, I'm going to go to Tarshish. Now, you know where Tarshish is? We got no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. But you know what? It's not Nineveh. And to emphasize that point, you'll notice three times in verse 2, it says Jonah went to Tarshish, went to Tarshish, went to Tarshish. God says, go to Nineveh and speak. Jonah runs to Tarshish in silence. Why? Why does he rebel? Why does he run? Well, maybe Jonah was afraid. We just saw in the text that Nineveh is evil. 
If you were to read Isaiah and Nahum, you would see that they are a wicked and bloodthirsty people. They were infamous for their, their brutality and cruelty. And so maybe Jonah was understandably afraid. And without a doubt, he had a long list of logical reasons why he didn't want to go. But there's something else going on. Look at chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. And he, that is Jonah, prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah tells us himself why he flees. He knew that if his enemies responded to his message with repentance and faith, God would be merciful and gracious. But Jonah did not want the Ninevites to receive God's mercy and grace. He did not want Nineveh to come up partakers in God's steadfast love. Why? Because he is self-centered. Jonah, if I had to say so, is a prejudiced man. For two, when I was in my country, he says, Jonah wants to receive the grace of God, as we'll see in chapter 2. He's very happy to take it, but he's not one to extend it to others. He wants the grace for my country, my people. Jonah saw himself as a worthy recipient of God's grace and mercy. But not those people, God, not those people. They don't even deserve to hear the message of grace and mercy and steadfast love. So he rebels. And I wonder if there's this type of prejudice in some of us. Your rebellion may not be as blatant as Jonah's because it's covered up by so many things. But if your life was reduced to four chapters, 48 verses, would a self-righteous, self-centered prejudice bubble up to the top? Are there certain people that you think unworthy to receive God's grace? Maybe that's a particular person, a person who's offended you. A person you just don't like and don't care about. And so you've cut them off in your heart. You know God's word calls you to engage them and serve them and care for them, but in your heart you run. Maybe it's not just a particular person, but a whole group of people. A certain race, certain ethnicity, we somehow think we're better than them. Or people you see as less intelligent, you're smarter and more deserving People who are poor and homeless, it's their fault, you think. People that are addicted to drugs and alcohol, it's their choice, you remember. People that are hurt and broken, they take too much time. We know God's Word calls us to engage them, to serve them and care for them, but in our heart we run. Brothers and sisters, There should be no hint, no hint of prejudice among us. 
self-serving discrimination has no place in the people of God. None. Like the flame that burns the impurities out of metal, the white-hot gospel of grace burns away any self-righteousness and entitlement we think that we have. Think of who we worship. Jesus Christ, fully God, with divine rights and glory. Yet he did not claim his rights and he gave up his glory. He took on the fullness of frail humanity, worthy to receive worship. He gave it up to go to a cross, taking our sin and our shame. This is how God loves us. And so all ground, all ground under the cross is level ground. And we walk not by merit or by worth, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. The Christian faith knows nothing of racism, bigotry, discrimination, or prejudice for any reason. We love everyone, even our enemies. Restoration Church, we have received God's grace. And I praise God that so many of you are eager to extend it and explain that grace to others. Let's be a church that explains and extends God's grace to all peoples, all races, all income brackets, and those who have no income at all, those with four degrees and those with no degrees, the socially able and the socially awkward, those who speak English and those who don't. Let's extend grace to everyone. See, Jonah was more concerned about maintaining his comfort than engaging God's mission. And if we're honest, we face the same temptation, don't we? Jonah was called to do a hard thing. Go and preach the gospel to Nineveh. Restoration Church, God's word calls us to do the same thing. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we may not have a direct word from God to go to Nineveh. We do have a direct word from God to go to our neighbors and the nations. So God calls us to go not because we're good, but because He's gracious. And God calls us to go not because we are able, but because He is able. And the Christian life is not going and telling people how much better we are than them. We're not. The Christian life is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food for both people. And so we go. We go to the Middle East. We support work in Haiti. We're planting a Spanish-speaking church. You go to your classmates, your co-workers, your neighbors, your families, your friends. Not because we're better and we want to convert them to our ways. No. We are the foremost of sinners. We want them to understand the grace God has given us and the grace they have in Christ too if they would turn to Him. So press on, brothers and sisters. I'm encouraged by you. Let's pray the Lord would give fruit to our sharing of the gospel. That we see our neighbors and the nations. So we, may, we always speak with our lips and show with our lives that we are the foremost of those that are needing grace. And then we, as we enjoy that grace, we explain it and we extend it to others. Jonah doesn't love people as God would have them to, but there's a bigger issue. 
It's not just that Jonah wanted to judge Nineveh. God, it's not just that Jonah wanted God to judge Nineveh as bad. That's not just it. No, rather, it's become Jonah is judging God and his word is bad. Jonah's ultimate problem is not with Nineveh. It's with God. Notice three times in chapter 1 that it says Jonah is fleeing from what? The presence of the Lord. You see it twice in verse 3. And then, and then again in verse 10, Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And here's the crazy thing. Jonah confesses in verse 10 that God made everything and is present everywhere. So how can he flee from God? It doesn't make any sense. But this is sin. Sin is irrational. Sin is dumb. I don't know if you've seen it, but I've got kids, and so I've seen it. When children sometimes mess up and disobey, they know they're in trouble They do one of two things. They either run in a dumb game of hide-and-seek. Where are you? Uh, You're in your bedroom. I know where you went. Or, perhaps even more silly, is they'll just stop and close their eyes and stand still. As if you can't see them. But you can see them. That's essentially what Jonah is doing with God. And it doesn't work. The only thing he's fleeing from is the sweet fellowship of God. He's running away from the relational presence of God. Jonah doubted God's word was for his good. And he chose his own desires. And at first, when Jonah goes to run, everything seemed to be going okay. He goes down to Joppa. He looks at the the, the parting board of the, the ships going out. Tarshish, I'll go to Tarshish. He reaches in his pocket and he happens to have some money. I'll buy a ticket and I'll go to Tarshish. He hops on the boat. All's going well. You can almost see Jonah. The, the breeze is blowing in his you know, face and he's, he's comfortable. He's so comfortable and confident. He's like, I think I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to lay down and I am going to take a nap. And soon I'll wake up in a new place with a wonderful place that I desire. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great great wind upon the sea. And this is no ordinary storm. These seasoned sailors know, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is not normal. And so what do they do? They check in with their little G gods and begin praying. That doesn't work, and so they start chunking their cargo. The very reason for their trip, they start chunking it off. So when your ship is about to go down, your your values get clarified real quick. But it still doesn't work. And I can just imagine the captain at this point, right? Going around, the prayer's not working. They feel the stuff is not working. And he's going around the boat, ensuring all hands are on deck. And he goes down, and he finds Jonah. Just sleeping. Verse 6. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. In other words, what are you thinking? Get up and pray. And here's what's ironic about the book of Jonah. It's the Gentiles and the pagans that have more spiritual discernment than the prophet of God. They are crying out for deliverance. Jonah is sleeping in oblivion. Out of any other options, the sailors decide to cast lots, so they, they essentially roll dice. Not, not a recommended way of discerning things. But 
when your ship is about to go down, your car goes off, your prayers aren't being answered, that's all you got. And so they do it. The lot stops on Jonah, which is not surprising because we read in Proverbs 16, the, the, the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Under God's sovereignty, there is no such thing as luck or chance. God is in control of everything. He sent the storm. He stopped the lot. Jonah could try to run from God, but he couldn't hide. His sin has found him out. And so the sailors begin to interrogate him. Who are you? Where are you from? What are your people? What's your job? What's your date of birth? What's your social security number? What are you doing here? Jonah finally speaks. I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So again, here's what's surprising. Jonah's theology is spot on. He used the covenant name of the Lord, the Lord's personal name. He professes to fear the Lord. Jonah understands the Lord is God of heaven, the creator of all things. And remember Jonah's words from chapter 4. God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's exactly how God revealed himself to Moses. Jonah knows his Bible. So he's a Hebrew. His spiritual background is strong. His theology is not lacking. But confessing the right theological truths is not enough. Jonah has the right answers, but he does not believe they are for his good. Instead of obeying God and his word, Jonah chases after his own desires. Jonah's loves are disordered. And so this is a warning for us, I think. That simply having the right answers, simply having a strong spiritual background is not enough. So the most important question is not, do you have a spiritual background and correct theology? The, the question is, do you love God? And do you trust His ways are for your good? Jesus Himself says, whoever has my commandments and obeys them, He is the one who loves me. God's Word is for our good. And Jesus says, I tell you these things that your joy might be full. So I think it's a good opportunity for us to evaluate our life, to see if there are consistent patterns where what we confess is not actually what we do. Consistent patterns. We're all, there's always going to be places where we're resting, we're trying to work this stuff out. Nathan talked about that a couple weeks ago. But the consistency in the patterns is what we're after. And if there's a rebellious aspect of your life that you're trying to hide, no, it will find you out. It will find you out. Your sin will find you out. Drag it out into the light on your own. It will be better that way. And know there is hope and mercy and forgiveness for whatever it is you're trying to hide. Because empty confessions, even confessions of right theology, are only as strong as a wet paper bag. What's on the inside will come out. Come, receive the grace and the mercy of Christ. Jonah doesn't do that. He's found out. And the sailors realize the weight of Jonah's words, even if Jonah doesn't. And so in verse 10, they're scared. And they ask Jonah, what is this you have done? So Jonah decided to rebel from the Lord. 
And now the sailors are caught up in the middle of the mess. They were simply going about their job. And now they're caught up in the mess that Jonah brought. And what about Jonah? He purchased a ticket to Tarshish, but he never reaches his destination. He never gets there. The false promises of the good life cost him, but he doesn't get what he pays for. This is what rebellion does. Rebellion brings destruction to ourselves and those around us. And this is the way it's always been. So remember back to the very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve in the garden. God gives them a command, a very positive command, eat anything you want except this one tree. He gives them the word. Satan shows up and what's he do? Did God really say? In other words, you should doubt God's word is for your good. And so, with false visions of the good life dancing in their minds, they eat. And then what do they do? Genesis 3.8 They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Sound familiar? Adam then does this. God, it's your fault and the woman you gave me. He cowardly blames his wife. And then God asks Eve a question. Genesis 3.13 What is this that you have done? Sound familiar? Jonah, fleeing from the presence of the Lord, is identical to the sin of Adam and Eve, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is asked, what is this you have done? God asks Adam and Eve, what is this you have done? Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden led to destruction for them and those around them. So it is with Jonah, and so it is with me. So it is with you. Rebellion leads to destruction for us and those around us. Doubting God's word, doubting God's goodness, leads us from the presence of the Lord, the place of joy and blessing, the truly good life. So like Jonah enjoying the breeze on the boat, it may feel enjoyable for a time, but eventually the storm is going to set in. There's a saying that goes like this. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin doesn't provide what it promises. And Satan doesn't want you to know that. He's going to present the bait and hide the hook. You can choose your sins, but not your sin's consequences. Don't believe the lie that you can manage your sin. There's collateral damage. So consider the destruction, sexual immorality, whether that's virtual on a computer, whether it's physical with another person. Consider the destruction that brings on your thought life and on your spouse, whether current or future. And then consider how that same thing cripples your inability to serve the church. 
consider the emotional exhaustion resulting from your bitterness toward that fellow church member. And with every condescending thought and slanderous word brings division to the church Jesus Christ bought with His blood. Consider the seed of self-righteousness that grows in our soul as we gossip about a coworker to another coworker. And then think about how your gospel witness has been weakened to both. Consider how selfish ambition or at work or hobby consumes your thoughts, causing you to drift from God and hinders your ability to make disciples. And parents, welcome to my conviction this week. Consider how your harsh words and impatience with your children affects not only your soul, but your children. The unchecked path of rebellion is not just living foolishly, it's dying slowly. Doubting God's word and fleeing from his presence is not freedom, it's destruction. And to quote another, God threatens terrible things to those who will not be happy in him. God threatens terrible things to those who will not be happy in him. And that's what we have to remember. God is after our happiness, our joy. He wants us to be happy in Him because He is the source of the ultimate joy and happiness. And so Jonah doesn't believe that, so Jonah runs from God, but he cannot outrun God. Same with us. We can run from God, but the good news is God runs for us. Mercifully, mercifully, God does not allow our rebellion to have the last word. His mercy and grace does. God's mercy and grace swallows up our rebellion. So Jonah runs. God, in response, hurls a storm. At first, we might be thinking like, well, God's just an angry, impatient dude flying off the handle. But the storm is God's matchless, sovereign grace. See, God doesn't want or will not let His children sin successfully. He calls them back. And what about the sailors? Minding their own business? In verses 8 and 9, what do they call the storm? Evil. Yet as we'll see, it's God's mercy and grace to them as well. And so do we have room for this in our theology? When we rebel against God and there's consequences for our sin, do we see that as God's grace? Because it is. It's God's grace. That there are consequences when we rebel. So don't complain, but praise Him. He loves you too much to let you sin successfully. That is God's kindness. And what about you when we're more like the sailors? We're literally just standing there trying to go about our daily job. And tragedy hits. And we think it's evil. And in many ways it is. It's sickness, it's death, it's cancer, it's tragedy. But could it be a means of God drawing you near? God is in the business of using unexpected things. Things even like a cross. To draw his children back to him. So the matchless, sovereign mercy of grace is swallowing up Jonah's rebellion. And as we're going to see, it's also swallowing up the sailors' false religion. So the sailors come to understand that that Jonah's God is in control. In verse 11, Jonah, how do we get out of this? 
We understand your God is who he is. How do we get out of this? And Jonah says, yep, it's my fault. Throw me overboard. Now, if I'm on the boat, Jonah's going over at that moment. But that's not what they do. You'd think they'd be eager to toss them. But these sailors are religious, and they don't want to do that. So verse 13 tells us they try to row hard, as hard as they can, to get back to land. So at this point, think about the sailors. They have a general understanding of God, and their instincts are to be moral, and to do good, yet it's not enough. And I think sometimes this is the way many people treat God. They have a general understanding of who He is, that He's in control, and they try to appease Him by doing good things, to try to get out of trouble. So maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you came here and you understand that there is a God and He is in control, and you think, well, if I just do enough good things, then I can get out of trouble or I can earn favor. I just want you to know that's not the story of Scripture. That's not how God operates. We don't have to row back to God. In fact, we cannot do enough good things to get back to God. So God is not a vending machine we we deposit good works into so that things pop out of him into our lives. We can't earn things from God, but we throw ourselves on his mercy and his grace. And that's exactly what the sailors do. Look there at verse 14. Therefore they, that is the sailors, called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you have done as you pleased. So they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The sailors moved from fearing the storm to fearing the Lord. And again, we see they fear the covenant name, the personal name of God. These sailors have come to faith in the one true Lord. That's what happens. They reject their attempts at rowing back and earning God's approval and they throw themselves on God's mercy and grace. And so if that's you this morning, will you throw yourself on God's mercy and grace? And as you'll see in just a minute, this mercy and grace comes to us in the person and the work of the greater Jonah, Jesus the Christ. So if you want to talk more about that, come find me, come find anybody you've seen up front, but we'd be happy to talk to you about this Lord, this God who gives mercy and grace and steadfast love to those who come to him. For my Christian brothers and sisters, also an important lesson here for us. Notice the sovereignty God uses to save his people despite Jonah's rebellion. Nothing can thwart God's plans. So don't give up on that person around you that you think so far removed from God's grace. A coworker, a family member, an unbelieving child, whatever it is, God's sovereignty will ensure that his people are called to himself. And notice one of the things he might use to do that is your confession of sin. See, we think God only uses us in our goodness. Jonah shows us God is so sovereign, he uses us in our guilt as well. That's the thing that God uses to bring these sailors to faith in himself. It's not Jonah's goodness. It's his confession of, I am messed up. In fact, that's the thing that makes Jonah believable to these guys. As as one commentator said, he says, The only reason why the word of Jonah the prophet is convincing is because he's such a screw-up. There's an academic scholar for you. 
But it's true. God's display of mercy and grace is not limited to our ability to obey him. It's not. And so while I don't want you running headlong into sin, if you want to do that, go read Romans 6. Paul argues against that. But I do want you to feel the freedom to not be defined and be held captive by your past. Even if that past was yesterday. Feel the freedom that God is so kind and merciful and gracious, he can use that for the gladness of other people's souls and the glory of his name. That's the God we serve. And so, don't hide. Let it out. And God might use it to bring others to faith in Christ. How amazing is that? Jonah 1 doesn't just end with these sailors worshiping. It ends with Jonah sinking. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now I get it. Some of you are thinking, really? Is this really true? In some ways you're right to think that. And this is why we call this a miracle and not Tuesday afternoon because it's strange. So what do we do with this? Well, the first thing I'd say is that Jonah 1.17 is nothing compared to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Surely, if God can create everything out of nothing, he can get do one, one fish to do what he wants. So if you believe Genesis 1.1, this one should be no issue. But secondly, I think we'd all agree... Christian or not, that we'd want to understand the Bible the way Jesus understands the Bible. So does Jesus have anything to say about Jonah? Fortunate for us, he does. Matthew chapter 12. This is Jesus interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he, that is Jesus, answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the words of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So along with a list of other historical people and events, Jesus freely lists Jonah, the fish, and Nineveh. And he says they're not just historically true, they are eternally significant. In that he says, Jonah points to his death and resurrection. So Jonah is not just about Jonah. Jonah points to a greater Jonah, Jesus the Christ. A word from God came to Jonah, but Jesus came as the word of God. Jonah is a sinner who runs from God. Jesus is God who runs for sinners. Jonah came as a rebellious Hebrew sinner. Jesus comes as a redeeming Hebrew Savior. Jonah was thrown into the sea to appease God's wrath for a few people. Jesus was thrown into the grave to appease God's wrath for all nations. 
Jonah ran from the Lord's presence into death, but Jesus rises from death to bring us into the Lord's presence. Amen? If you want proof of God's mercy and steadfast love, if you're looking for a sign, look to the cross of Christ. It's there we see an empty tomb and we savor God's mercy and grace that swallows up our rebellion. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the greater Jonah this morning. Jonah 1 closes with an astonishing picture. The chosen prophet of God sinks to the depths of the earth while Gentiles worship the Lord above. These Gentiles know the Lord and are saved from death precisely because of the suffering of God's chosen prophet. Jonah is not about a disobedient prophet. It's about God's obedient son. Jonah is not about a big fish. It's about a faithful God. Rebellion leads to destruction, but God's matchless sovereign and grace swallows up that rebellion. We might run from God, but the good news is God runs to us. So maybe you're like the sailors trying to row back to the shore with your good works. Just know you'll never make it on your own. Maybe you're like Jonah and trying to run from God. Know that you can run, but you can't hide. And the question for all of us is, will we throw ourselves on the grace and the mercy and the steadfast love of God shown to us in the greater Jonah, Jesus the Christ? Jonah 1's inviting us to enjoy the matchless grace of God as we extend and explain that grace to others, even our enemies. Behold, something, or should we say someone, greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. Oh, how kind you are. How sovereign you are. Yet your sovereignty is gracious. It is steadfast. And so we worship you. We confess that we have rebelled, but oh, how we enjoy that Jesus Christ is enough. Lead us, Lord, to turn from our rebellion. Lead us to not doubt your goodness and your word, but to trust in you. To throw ourselves on your mercy and grace. That we might enjoy that grace as we extend it to others. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.